Hebrews 20.20. We see Jesus today. There's a special communion service. All are welcome to participate. So if you haven't got the communion elements, you might want to put this on pause and go get them. Today we want to consider something about being or becoming the companions of Christ. A pretty big theme in Hebrews. Found in Hebrews 3.14, which will be one of our text verses. For you are the companions of Christ if a certain thing is going on in your life. And so today we want to truly see Jesus and not just take for granted this as a title for a series. We do want to see Jesus with the eyes of our heart. And the scripture says we see him crowned with glory and honor. Not just glory, not just honor, glory and honor. The glory that's spoken of here in Hebrews, as well as Psalm 8, speaks of the glory of a king. It's a royal or kingly regal glory. The honor is that of a priest. And so there's a specific reason why it's glory and honor. In Hebrews 2.9, we see him crowned with the glory of a great king and with the honor of a great high priest. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity, not only for a message, but for us to gather together in the pleasant unity of siblings in Christ, for a communion service, for the celebration of the communion service. May we approach this message today and this Eucharist with gratitude, for it's only with gratitude that we serve you and worship you acceptably. And so we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now the book of Judges ends with the following historical note. And it's a tragic note. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Each man would do what was right in his own eyes. When that happens... In any given historical era, perilous times will have come. In the first Adam, there is atomization. And when I say atomization, I'm playing on words a little bit here, but it's A-T-O-M-I-Z-A-T-I-O-N. To be atomized basically means every man for himself. Atomization is when there's a, an obliteration of unity and when each and every person lives for themselves, to themselves, and for their own interest only, without a view to the interests of others. Paul faced a situation like that even in his time when he said, all are seeking their own interests and none are seeking the interests of Jesus Christ in Philippians Chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Therefore, he commended Timothy because Timothy wasn't of that majority. So in the first Adam, there is atomization. When each person does what's right in their own eyes. They talk about things like, it's my truth. It's what I see as true in my own eyes. So it's not the truth, which is what we see when we see Jesus and when we see with his eyes. In Christ, the second Adam, or the last Adam, as he's more properly called, there is a solidarity rather than an atomization, a union of subjects, an intersubjectivity, which is a very important word for us as we continue in Hebrews, intersubjectivity, and a harmony that arises from an otherworldly peace. Jesus said, I give you peace that the world does not give. It's an otherworldly peace. The 
world can't give it. Nothing that the world has to offer can give it. It's peace from the Prince of Peace, the King of Glory, the God who speaks peace to his people. Psalm 85, 8, John 20, and verse 6, etc. And Jesus is our peace. Now, in the 14th of 15 consecutive psalms, those psalms I speak of are Psalm 120 through 134. 15 psalms. In the Septuagint, they appear as Psalm 119 to 133. They're called Songs of the Stairs, or Songs of Ascent, or Steps, or even Stairway, or Staircase. Maybe Led Zeppelin was on to something. Stairway to heaven. Songs of the stairs, they're called. In the 14th of 15 of these consecutive psalms, there's the psalm of brotherly and sisterly solidarity. It's a most beautiful psalm. It's Psalm 133 in your Bible. The Septuagint has it at 132. What is described there is a praiseworthy and agreeable harmony of livingness. When the brethren dwell together in unity, as the King James says, the double simile for this unity is first that it's like the fragrant perfume on the head of Aaron, the high priest, which descends onto his beard, then to his priestly garments, all the way down to the fringe of his garments. That's the first simile that describes that unity, that solidarity, that peaceful intersubjectivity. The second simile is it's called, it's like the dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon being the tallest of the mountains of the Zion range. So it's like the dew of Hermon also descending from heaven the tallest of the mountains of Zion. Because there, says the psalm composer, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. He commands this life, this livingness. Jesus said, I have received a commandment from my Father, and the commandment is life. In John twelve forty nine to 50, perhaps he had that in mind. This scene is both a contrast to the situation described at the close of the era of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So Psalm 133 is a contrast to that situation, but it's also a forecast of the scene that's depicted in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. And we keep referencing that because in one way it's a climactic passage in Hebrews. In another way, it may be for us a segue into a series called Uranopolis, unless I finish that series right within Hebrews, which seems to be possible. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, special reference to Mount Zion. That's where this pleasant unity is commanded. This life and livingness forever is commanded. It says, you have approached Mount Zion, that is, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, myriads of angels in celebratory assembly, the community of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, God the justifying judge of all, and the spirits of the justified made complete, the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. So it's ultimately on this heavenly Mount Zion, the city of the New Jerusalem, the city of the living God, which Jesus calls the city of the great king in Matthew 5.35. He says, swear not by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. <clears throat> The great king is also a great high priest, as we find in Hebrews. But not like Aaron, 
So there the similarity ends. Not like Aaron. No. Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. There's also a passage in Scripture where the anointing oil comes down upon his head and his beard and his garments, and it's poured there by a woman in Mark chapter 14, a woman who's criticized for extravagance by Judas and other of the disciples, but who is commended by Jesus and defended by him. So Jesus is a priest, but not like Aaron. He's a priest like Melchizedek, because Melchizedek, unlike Aaron, was also a king. So the opposite of the situation at the end of Judges pertains here. I'm speaking this in an era and a year specifically, a year of political uncertainty, of distrust in institutions, a time when we ought to be all the more than ever, more than ever, oriented to the great king. Where there's no king in Israel, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Everybody has their own version of the truth. There's atomization, which is otherwise known as perishing. For without a vision, even my people perish, says God. Here in this unity described in the Psalm of the Stairs, it is not every person for themselves. Now I'm saying this because this is also pertinent to the communion service. When we gather, it's not everyone for themselves. In fact, that's to partake of the Eucharist unworthily. So there are hints in this message that pertain and lead us up the stairs of ascent to the Lord's feasting table, the Lord's Supper. So here it is not every person for themselves, but everyone living for the one who rose from the dead, 2 Corinthians 5.15. Here in the solidarity of siblings, each one is urged to be concerned not for their own interest only, but also for the interests of others, which is the same as having the concerns of Jesus Christ. For when he says, when you did this to them, you've done this to me. And also see Philippians 2, 1 to 5 and 2, 20 to 21. Here in this pleasant harmony, there isn't the lonely atomization of souls alienated from the life of God. Ephesians 4.18. Here is a solidarity of souls experiencing the life of God in Christ, the last Adam, the second Sir, single inclusive representative. Here, every person doesn't do what's right in their own eyes. Here, on this mountain, every eye is trained on the king. Every eye sees Jesus. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. The glory with which Jesus is crowned is royal or kingly glory. For he's called the king of glory specifically, doxes, glory, in Psalm 24, 7, which the Septuagint has as 23, 7. Ho basileus tes Doxes, the king of glory. We see him crowned with glory because he's the king, the great king. The honor, time, T-I-M-E, with which Jesus is crowned is the honor of being an archpriest, the great archpriest. For in Hebrews 5, 4, it says of the priesthood, no one takes this honor on himself. Honor. Same word as in Hebrews 2.9. We see him crowned with honor, the honor of a priest. No one takes this honor to himself. Jesus was appointed that priest. You are a priest forever, says the Father to the Son. The Son didn't 
steal this honor. He didn't take it to himself. We see him crowned with glory then, speaks of his glory as the great king. When we see him crowned with honor, or when we say we see him crowned with honor, it is with the honor of the great high priest. The eyes of every heart are enlightened to see him. And when we see him, we see in him, in his person, we see the hope of our calling. We see the riches of our eternal inheritance. And we see the immeasurable greatness of the power that works in us when we believe. Ephesians 1.18 to 19. It is especially the hope of our calling of those three things that we emphasize in this increment of exposition and exhortation. We are partners in a heavenly calling, says Hebrews 3.1, as we've seen. And this calling has a hope. The hope is Jesus and the expectation of our conformity to his image and his likeness. For we have been destined, predestined, to conformity to the image of God's Son, according to Romans 8.29. So in Hebrews 3.14, where we are in our exegesis, for the proof that we've become companions of the Christ is that we hold firmly the reality. Now here's a very important word. It's hupo. Stasis, H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. Hupostasis, and we're going to see what that means down the road just a little bit here, actually. Hupostasis. We might call it the ball that we tuck. The quarterback gives us the ball and we run. We tuck the ball and we keep running. We don't expect to be applauded by the heroes of faith in the stands if we fumble the ball or if we relinquish it for any other reason, maybe out of fear of being tackled. The proof that we've become companions of the Christ is that we hold firmly the reality and that reality is the substance of hoped for things. That reality is, again, the substance of hoped for things. You know the word phenomenon. Well, there's a word called elpizo-nomenon. Hoped for things. We become companions of the Christ if we hold firmly the substance of the hope for things until the end. The end is the time of completion, and it means the reaching of a goal. So the proof that we become companions of the Christ is that we hold firmly the reality or the substance of hope for things until the objective is reached. We hold that reality that we had from the beginning or at the beginning until the end. So here's a translation, a working translation of 314. For the proof that we've become companions of the Christ is that we hold firmly the reality until the end that we had at the beginning. The hope that we have and hold is a good hope by grace. That's what 2 Thessalonians 2.16 calls it. It's a good hope by grace. It's good to have it. It's beneficial to have it. It's almost medicinal and therapeutic for the soul to have this hope. It's part of the governance of grace in our innermost person. Hope is part of the governance of grace in our innermost person. It is by God's grace, something we could never earn or deserve, that we have this hope. Again, 2 Thessalonians 2.16. This hope is connected to the events that are entirely God's doing and not our own doing. If it was of our own doing, hope would not be certain. Hope would not be sure. 
it's because our hope is in God's doing that our hope is secure and that it makes us secure. It stabilizes us, stabilizes our soul. For those who think that kicking 2020 to the curb means everything's going to be all right, you got something coming that you are not going to like if your whole life is based on circumstances. This hope is connected to events that are entirely God's doing and not our own. This is God's doing, said the psalmist. It is marvelous where? In our eyes. We don't do what's right in our own eyes. We see God's doing, and it's marvelous in our own eyes. We see Jesus, and he's marvelous in our eyes. The readers of Hebrews were told, we are the companions of Jesus. If we hold fast to the end, the reality we had at the beginning. It's like we were given the ball, and we tuck it and run to, the to make a touchdown, or at least to make a gain. And... The reality that we hold fast is the hoped for things. Now that's found in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance. Same word is used in Hebrews 11.1 1, as in the Greek text of Hebrews 3.14. We hold fast the substance, the reality that we had at the beginning. Faith is the substance or the reality of things hoped for. Faith is actually the presence of the future world with us now. It's like when we say, let's let the new Jerusalem into our minds. The new Jerusalem, the future city, is in our minds now. The future city exists in what is future to us, but what is present to God. What is present to the justified spirits made perfect to the angels, to God the judge of all. So the reality that we are to hold fast is the hoped for things that we first learned about. In the case of the readers, the first readers of Hebrews, the reality that they were to hold fast is the hoped for things that they first learned about through the preachers of the word. Hebrews 13.7 and 13.17 and Hebrews 2.1 and 2. These hope for things are also called the hope of the gospel in Colossians 1.23 and the hope of our calling in Ephesians 1.18. It is also called the one hope of Ephesians 4.5 and that one hope means that we hold that hope together. We are, it's an intersubjective hope, not just individual. It's one hope, and it holds us together. We hold it together, and it holds us together. Ephesians 4, 5. Faith had been evoked, ignited, kindled, we could say, in the Hebrews, the initial readers of this homily. The faith that was given to them was the substance of hoped for things. Subjective faith, we might call it, is the assurance of hoped for things. Intersubjective faith simply means we have this assurance together. We hold it together with others. The hoped for things have to do with the eschatological salvation which is to encompass and embrace the whole universe of proportionate being. Now, holding this hope together is essential if we're going to enjoy the communion service the way we ought to. Because Jesus said, remember my death, something of God's doing, not yours, until I come, something of God's doing, not yours, until I come, that's hope. The hoped-for things have to do with an eschatological salvation and a universal salvation which encompasses the whole universe of proportionate being. 
Romans 8, 22 to 23 talks about that, and we've said that many times. That's the inheritance of Jesus, God's Son. He is the heir of all things, which means that he is to inherit a new universe of proportionate being. He's the heir of all things in Hebrews 1, 2. And that's also the promised inheritance of Abraham and his seed in Romans 4.13. They were, Abraham and his seed were promised not just land, but cosmos, the universe. A new universe wherein all of created reality is comprised of Christ himself. Now, let's take a slightly different tack here. In the narrative of John's gospel, in John 129, it says, The next day John, that's John the Immerser, the Baptist, the next day John sees, and this is a vivid historical present tense of blepo, the same word used in Hebrews 2.9. The next day John sees Jesus, listen carefully to this, coming toward him. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this may be compared to we see, same word blepo, present active indicative third person singular of blepo, which is the key word for seeing here. We see, and that means we see with discernment, blepo, Jesus in Hebrews 2.9. It says, we see Jesus, who was made inferior to the angels for a little while, so that far from God he would taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. It says, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. As a reward for it, we could say. Much later in Hebrews 13.20, the PT proclaims that the Lord Jesus was led up from the dead on a pathway of life, so to speak, as an homage and as a recognition that Jesus poured out blood was indeed the blood that ratified the new covenant. That's what communion's all about, too. A celebration of the blood that ratified the new covenant by which all would know the Lord from the greatest to the least. That's Jeremiah 31, 34, Septuagint 38, 34, and also Hebrews 8, 11. Now, the next day after John says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he sees him again in John 1, 36. And this distinction is important. On the day after, John the Immerser, while standing with two of his disciples, he saw Jesus again. And again, he says, look, the Lamb of God. But this time, Jesus wasn't coming toward John. He was passing by. John the Immerser said to the two disciples, Look, the Lamb of God, as if to nod to the one who is passing him by. As if to say, go follow him now. Be his disciples, become his companions. The humility of John is often missed. He gladly gave his disciples to a greater teacher. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. It's that simple. Jesus had passed by John now. He was about to increase as John was to decrease. John would later say that. He must increase and I must decrease. The disciples intuitively knew, as did John the Immerser, that they were to follow Jesus from that moment on. They were to become Jesus' companions, not just his disciples. In fact, they would be his friends. And Jesus even said that in John 15, 15. 
From now on, I'm not calling you servants, but friends. It's, it's impossible to imagine a greater honor than that. We are companions of Jesus. That's what Hebrews 3.14 talks about. See the connections here, the correlations. This isn't a run-of-the-mill commentary. We are companions of Jesus. If having seen him, we follow him. And if having followed him, he tells us all that his father tells him. I'm calling you friends because I'm telling you everything my father told me. When Abraham was called the friend of God, it's because the Lord Yahweh said to him, why should, should I not withhold anything from him? Why should I not tell him everything? He's my friend. We are his companions, says Hebrews 3.14, if we hold on to the reality of the hoped-for things. And that little Greek word, I'll just give it in the English transliteration, just so that you can see it's kind of related to the word phenomenon, only it's a hope phenomenon. It's the Greek word E-L-P-I-Z-O. Now that means hope. But then it's M-E-N-O-N, kind of like phenomenon, only elpizomenon, elpizomenon. In fact, the accent would fall here, so it sounds a little different. Elpizomenon, elpizomenon. Simply means hoped for things in general. And we'll explain a little bit more what that hope for, that those hoped for things are. If we hold on to those hoped for things to the end, to the point where we become like him, in other words, there's no end beyond that end of becoming like him. In Acts chapter 4, I know we're all over the place today, but that's how I read the Bible when I first began. I never just read a book straight through. I'd read until I saw a cross-reference, then I'd follow the cross-reference. Then I'd read till I found another cross-reference. Then I followed the cross-reference. I guess that's kind of like reading the Bible under the cross. But in Acts chapter 4, when the members of the council in Old Jerusalem saw how bold Peter and another John, John Zebedee, were, though they were not formally trained, and they were saying, these guys aren't formally, they didn't go to the seminary we went to. Though they were not formally trained, the people on the council were amazed, and it says they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I remember after my ordination, people kept saying, where'd you go to seminary? Where'd you go to seminary? Where'd you go to seminary? And I never really got to answer it. But... Maybe I'd just been with Jesus for a while. Well, in Acts 4.13, they were amazed, not just that they had a message, but that they were like Jesus. They were like him. They knew he was, they were with him because they acted like he did, and specifically that means they had his characteristic fearlessness and outspoken boldness. Now, to be outspoken doesn't mean you got to be loud. A lot of people can be outspoken with very quiet confidence. A soft-spoken person can still have candid confidence. We live in a time now where everybody can be their own professional. Everyone can have their own confession of Christ. Everyone can be an evangelist by having just a presence on the World Wide Web, and by being outspoken with their faith. Now, there are many engines and there are many tech companies that want to thwart that freedom today, so you kind of have to look around now. But everybody has the right and the freedom to demonstrate their hope with boldness if you're a Christian and you have that hope especially. You got something that really means something. The word for this candid confidence 
is parousia, P-A-R-R. And no other word in America means more than this because it means freedom of speech. Parousia. It means freedom of speech. But it means more than that. It means freedom of speech freely expressed, boldly and confidently expressed. That's what our whole country was founded upon, that freedom. And that freedom is under a threat now that's so severe that you don't even want to think of it very long because the threat is real against your freedom of speech. It's going to cost something to have the confident boldness that these disciples had. You don't have this boldness without having the reality of hope for things in your heart and mind. Tucked, gripped, grasped. The word for this candid confidence, again, is parousia. It was the characteristic of Jesus in his preaching and his livingness. When the Roman soldiers were sent out to capture him, they went back having been captured by him. They said, never have we heard anybody speak like this man. It's a word that pops, this parousia. It pops in Hebrews 3, 6, 10, 19, and 10, 35. So it's a key word in Hebrews. In every case, it's a characteristic or even a substance that a person has or that a group has. Blessed is the group or the church, the community, the assembly that has this boldness in, a, in an intersubjective way. It's a subjective characteristic, and it's an intersubjective characteristic. John and Peter both have it. John, Zebedee, and Peter both have it. It's a characteristic of their group, of the twelve as it's called, even though at that time there were 11. In Hebrews 3.6, it says that we demonstrate that we are God's house if we hold fast to the outspoken confidence, tain parisian, and to the boast of the hope. It sounds like we're bragging when we express this hope, because we are. It's a boast. You'll see all this in print if you get the notes. And then it says, until the end, until the goal is reached, the objective or the conclusion being full conformity to the image of him who is the essential image of God. Conformity to Christ, that's the end that we're aiming at. We hold the hope till we reach that end. Now, why is boldness and outspokenness something to hold on to? Why something to grasp and keep holding on to it? Well, it's because one's real hope is revealed by how one holds that hope and expresses that hope. In a way, it's a commitment to be bold and outspoken about what we believe shows that we truly believe it. Jesus was known as a teacher who spoke with authority, not like the Pharisees. You could tell he believed what he was teaching. He was confident in the content of his doctrine because he says, my doctrine is not my own, but it's the one who sent me. It's the doctrine of my Father in heaven. John seven sixteen to 17, for example. How about 2 Corinthians 4, 13? Paul said there that he had the same spirit of faith. And it's true that spirit there should be lowercase, pneuma. He had the same spirit of faith as the psalm composer who wrote, I believed, therefore I spoke. Paul says, okay, the psalmist wrote that in Psalm 116.10, or Septuagint 115.1. I believed, therefore I spoke. Well, that's what Paul says. We have the same spirit of faith. 
We speak what we believe. We believe, and therefore we speak. The true preacher openly speaks that which he inwardly believes. He has a spirit of faith. And this means that his innermost being is characterized by faith. The same with any witness, man or woman. A spirit of faith. His is a spirit of faith because the Spirit of God evoked that faith in him. Gifted him with faith. It is a faith that is deep because it's in the deepest and innermost part of his being. And it came from the deepest and innermost part of God's being his spirit in 1 Corinthians 2, 11, 2, 10 and 11. It is the spirit of a woman or of a man that is joined to the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians six seventeen. That's why there is the pneumatic person, the spiritual person, as opposed to the sukikos person, the soulish person, and the sarkikos person the fleshly person. The spirit is distinct from the soul because the spirit is a deeper part of the person. One has a spirit of faith because one is joined to the Holy Spirit who evokes faith, kindles it, ignites it. Some would even say creates the faith. The Holy Spirit is the eternal spirit and so the faith that he evokes is abiding faith. He's the eternal spirit in Hebrews 9.14. So the faith that he evokes is an abiding faith. It abides like the unshakable kingdom of God. Like God himself. Like the city of the great king. It continues like the city of the living God, unlike here where we have no continuing cities. It continues like the city of the great king, who is also called the king of the ages in 1 Timothy 1.17. We must understand that the king who is the king of all people, all angels, all the universe, is also the king of time. He redeems time. He governs over time. And in the fullness of times, God will bring restoration of everything and summation of all things in Christ. So when we speak of a deep and abiding faith, we speak with outspokenness and boldness. Paul had already written about his own boldness, and this, this verse juts out more than others I've spoken of today, even more, where Paul had already written about his own boldness and the outspokenness of his fellow preachers in 2 Corinthians 3.12, where we find that word parousia, but before it we have pale, much or intense parousia. Since I love this because it says so much. He says, since we have such a hope, we use great boldness. Such a hope, in 2 Corinthians 3.12, is with regard to such a great salvation. In Hebrews 2.3. It is something that ought not be neglected, this great salvation, and it's neglected to our peril. Perilous times come because people neglect such a great salvation. And by doing so, lose hope and depart from the living God with a heart that's infected with unbelief. This is revelatory for our time. Hope is juxtaposed here with boldness. The greater the hope, the more the boldness. There is the use of the expression of boldness or outspokenness because there is the having and holding of hope. 
The hope is a certain expectation, not a tentative one. All the promises of God are yes and amen in him, not maybe. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, because anything other than that is, comes from the evil one. Hesitancy, double-mindedness. One speaks with timidity if one's hope is tentative or uncertain. One speaks with open boldness and confident freedom if one has a certain hope. Our hope is sure and steadfast because that which we hope for is an inevitability, not a probability, which is all science can deal with, not a possibility, which is what philosophy deals with. We're talking about an inevitability, which is what prophecy deals with, what God deals with. Peter spoke boldly of that inevitability. He called it the apocatastasis pantone in Acts 3.21. Paul wrote forthrightly of it as anakephaliosis tapanta, the summation of everything, the recapitulation of all things in Christ. Jesus himself called it palingenesia, again Genesis, a new Genesis in Matthew 19.28. The PT in Hebrews calls it diorthosis, D-I-O-R-T-H-O-I-S, O-S-I-S, D-I-O-R-T-H-O-S-I-S in Hebrews 9.10. It means a literally a setting right, a correction in connection with a creation not of this world or of this transient age, this evanescent eon. Now this is a passage, once again, I like to give you passages that have been meaningful to me over the decades and that have stuck out to me more than other passages in research. And regarding the anakephaliosis, as Paul called it in Ephesians 1.10, Irenaeus, that's I-R-E-N-A-E-U-S, of the second century, he made a specific point to teach that the anakephaliosis has a diachronic value. And by that I simply mean that in Christ... God recapitulates all of humanity in all of its times. God not only redeems the spatial creation, he redeems temporality and time itself. He redeems history. And he also takes into that service people. And that's why the Bible says, redeem the time, for the days are evil. In Hebrews, no, sorry, that's Ephesians 5.16. But you knew that already. So in his excellent survey called Early Christian Doctrines, J.N.D. Kelly says the following about Irenaeus. And that book actually was given to me by, and I hope if you hear this, Greg, you won't get too mad at me, my cousin, whom I call my favorite brain surgeon atheist cousin, Greg Dr. Loomis, this is uh, dedicated to you then, this J.N.D. Kelly. You, you gave me this book you probably don't remember. It's called Early Christian Doctrines, and in it, one of the greatest quotes I ever read came. So thank you for helping my faith. This is what J.N.D. Kelly says about Irenaeus. He says, he understands the Pauline text as implying that the Redeemer gathers together, includes or comprises the whole of reality in himself. The human race being included. In close conjunction with this, he exploits to the full the parallelism between Adam and Christ, which was so dear to St. Paul. Christ is indeed in his eyes the second Adam and recapitulated or reproduced the first even in the manner of his birth, being generated from the blessed virgin as the first Adam was from the virgin earth. Further, just as Adam contained in himself all his descendants, 
So Christ, as the Lucan genealogy proves, recapitulated in himself the long sequence of mankind and passed through all the stages of human life, sanctifying each in its turn. As a result, and this is Irenaeus's main point, says Kelly, just as Adam was the originator of a race disobedient and doomed to death, so Christ can be regarded as inaugurating a new redeemed humanity. Later, Kelly observes this, and I say it because it's germane to Hebrews 2.14, because he is identified with the human race at every phase of its existence, speaking of Jesus, he restores fellowship with God to all, perfecting man according to God's image and likeness. And because he is a real man, born of a woman, he is able to vanquish the devil into whose power mankind had fallen. We've got a lot more to say down the road on that one. So under the devil's power, there's the fear of death. There is every person for themselves. As if there's no king in Israel. In a crisis, it's every man for himself. There is atomization, not unity or harmony under the devil's rule. It's important, therefore, that we are awakened to the meaning of the recapitulation of all things in Christ because it is the essence of the hope for things that faith is all about. Moreover, as such, it's the basis for our confidence and our outspokenness. That's why I've been outspoken since 1978 and for a few years before that starting in 72 or 3. The way, to, the way of the present evil age is reflected in the tyrannical trend in social media which seems designed to thwart freedom of speech, the very thing that parisia denotes. So to balk and to no longer be forthright and bold in our confession is linked to the fact that we've lost our grasp or given up our grip on hope. If we relinquish our grip on hope, we are no longer, we can no longer be called the companions of Christ. By that I mean we're no longer expressive of his kind of forthrightness about heavenly things. It doesn't mean we've lost our eternal position with Christ. It means we can't call ourselves companions because we're not forthright about heavenly things. Hebrews makes much of our confession for that reason in Hebrews 3.1, 4.14, and 10.23. Now, there's much more I could say about this from a pastoral point of view, and I had much more to say, but I do want to segue into the communion without taking too much more time, especially if you're watching this on a Sunday morning. The content of Hebrews, and we'll move into the communion with these words, creatively oscillates, as we've seen, between positive and negative incentive. God doesn't want us to make the same mistake as the majority of desert generation who were beneficiaries of astounding salvific miracles but who didn't trust the Lord afterwards. It is this very generation, God says, grieved, as you can tell, he said, who saw my works and who always were led astray in their hearts, who disbelieved and who bitterly complained and rebelled against God and his delegated representative, Moses. 
They were all the more responsible, having been the beneficiaries of extraordinary divine saving interventions. That's who's being warned here. A delivered people can be the worst of all people if they lack the appreciation and gratitude to their deliverer. So as we move into the communion service, Eucharist, as it's called, Eucharist comes from eucharisteo, which means gratitude, giving of thanks. And charis is right in the middle there, C-H-A-R-I-S, grace. We are only grateful when we have received grace. So let us have grace, says Hebrews 12, 28. And that's exactly how I would translate it. But it's understood, and the sense of that means to have gratitude. And so I looked at a few translations in the RSV. It says, let us be grateful. In the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, let us give thanks. We're at Hebrews 12.28 here. Let us therefore be grateful and use our gratitude to worship God in the way that pleases him in reverence and fear, says the New Jerusalem Bible. Let us be thankful, says the New International Version. Let us be grateful, says the English Standard Version. We who are receiving the unshakable kingdom should have gratitude, says the New American Bible. Let us show gratitude, says the New American Standard Bible, and let us give thanks, says the New English Translation, the Net Bible. Gratitude is the proof that we're holding on to the grace we received and grasped. Bitterness is the proof that we have not. When we hold on to the good hope that we have been given by grace... We are demonstrating that we are the companions of Christ because he endured the cross, despising the shame, and did so with a view to the hoped-for recapitulation of all things in himself and the good and delightful universal unity that will be experienced in the heavenly city of the great king. To hold fast to this hope for reality is to have allowed the entrance into our minds of the new and heavenly Jerusalem situated on the northern slopes of the heavenly Mount Zion. We ought to begin to speak of this future city with the same kind of loving nostalgia that we would speak of as a city of our birth. Now, we will participate in the communion. If you have the elements, the bread, and the fruit of the vine, we will carry on and approach the communion service with gratitude. That's the issue. Consider the objection of the disciples to the woman with the alabaster container of ointment who poured the expensive ointment on Jesus' head. And so we have something that we began our message with today, the oil that comes upon the head of Aaron, down to his beard, down to his garments, down to the fringe of his garments, which one woman touched one time and was healed of a hemorrhage of blood. Consider how this woman was judged for being too extravagant, but whom Jesus defended and commended. In today's communion service, we sympathize with this woman. We empathize with this woman because we share in her extravagant giving of ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ in remembrance of him. Remember my death, he said, until I come. You don't realize, and neither do I, how important it is that he has allowed us to live for such a time as this. And by that I mean not 2021, but the time between his death and his coming again when he comes to bring salvation. We live in that time. It's a proving ground for faith 
so that our faith will be commended at the universal appearance of Jesus Christ. It's an arena of contention in which we have the privilege to contend as warriors of faith. For the final commendation of warriors will be the warriors and the heroes of faith. And the commendation will be given by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we approach the communion today with our own deep and abiding appreciation for his sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, and our own ever-intensifying anticipation of his coming again. For when he comes, it will be, listen carefully, with salvation, Hebrews 9.28, not only for us, but for all for all who are presently being saved and for all who are presently perishing. I want this communion service to be meaningful. If it isn't meaningful, then it's a wasted minute of time. It's a wasted moment. So we have to consider just what it means when we say intersubjectivity. It's an interpersonal experience of consciousness that occurs on the fifth level of intentional human consciousness. Alone, I'm a subject. I experience. I hear. I see. I feel. This is the first level of consciousness of a single subject, an individual person. As an individual human subject, I inquire. I discover. I receive insights on the second level of consciousness. And on the third, after reflection, I make hopefully sound judgments. As an individual subject, I am subjective. I ask, is it really so? I reflect. I gather evidence for or against insights or knowledge, or understanding that I've achieved or acquired. As an individual subject, I deliberate on those judgments I made after reflection on the fourth level of consciousness. It's on the fourth level where I have a conscience, and where Paul says when we partake of the communion, judge yourselves, lest you should be judged with the world. When the conscience is purified by the blood of Jesus Christ, it's something that happens on the fourth level of my consciousness, of our consciousness. On the fourth level of the intentional consciousness, one believes, for the scripture says we believe with the heart. Or is it the third level, when we make a judgment that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? The Holy Spirit evokes faith on that level with judgments when we judge the righteous judgment that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now you can talk all you want about assembling together and about the importance of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, but without the intersubjectivity of love on the fifth level of consciousness, there's nothing there. For the Bible says we must discern the body and the among other things, that not only means the body that Jesus offered on the cross for us, but we must discern the body of believers. We must think in an intersubjectivity of humility and love and Philadelphia. Philadelphia, or brotherly, sisterly love in Hebrews 13.1, is to continue and abide. It's on the fifth level along with agape love. And I'm saying all this because to have a meaningful Eucharist and service, we approach it with gratitude. We do it together, not as isolated and atomized Adamic individuals, but as believers in Christ who are part of Christ and members of one another. That's why Paul even made sure that everyone was there and got the elements and there was no stragglers, and everybody got it together before they took 
are the communion. It's an intersubjectivity, an interpersonal expression of values and virtue. We together value our Lord Jesus Christ above all other things. He is everything to us. We remember him and call to remembrance him affectionately. We see him now crowned with glory and honor. We celebrate him. We do so in anticipation of his death, or in anticipation, rather, of his coming, in appreciation of his death. So it has to be in the spirit of sibling love, which includes our love for our elder brother, Jesus, who's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. That's what binds us in a pleasant and harmonious solidarity of spirits, a coalition of hearts, and one body, not atomized, but one in the last atom, a forecast and a foretaste of the universal recapitulation that will be gloriously and completely brought about when he comes. So in the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it because it symbolized the body that he would offer on the cross for us. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat it. And in the same way, he took the cup of the fruit of the vine, gave thanks, and said to his disciples, this is my blood of a new covenant. Drink it, all of you. And now, Father, in a time of political uncertainty in our nation and even across the world, we thank you that our eyes can look to see our great king. We have celebrated today in appreciation of his death and in anticipation of his coming again to bring salvation. And we thank you for this privilege. And may we, from this moment on, grasp this hope and hold it and not lose it so that we can truly be the companions of Christ in this great year of the great King. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen.